Glad you have joined us on this Memorial Day weekend. No problem parking today. <laughs> Welcome to you on live stream as well. We're glad you have joined us. This is Memorial Day weekend, and it is fitting that we pause for just a couple of moments and think about what we do celebrate as a country on Memorial Day. Uh, the lives of men and women who had this great experiment in mind to have a land in no small part based on the freedom of this. That we could gather and assemble and open it and read it without the government or the king telling us what it meant and how to apply it. And in no small part, the great experiment has been phenomenal although one arguably would say today it is an unmitigated disaster at some levels, we still have the freedom to gather. We still have the freedom to come here without persecution or fear. We still have the right to open this book, to sing songs to our Savior, to read it, to study it, to teach it. In First Timothy, the so-called pastoral letters, First and Second Timothy, Titus, the letters to the Thessalonians, we call those the pastorals. Uh, Paul, the apostle, elder statesman, is writing in our vernacular how to do church. I find it striking in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he writes, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Now here's why. Here's the purpose clause. So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is first century stuff. And he's telling the church, you pray for those in authority because God's ordained that authority. As corrupt and as crazy as it is, God's allowed that authority to exist. And you pray for them so that, why? You and I can lead a tranquil and quiet and dignified life. So I want us to take a moment to pray, and I'll lead you in some clauses where you might pray for some things that you want, and then I'll close our time and we'll open Genesis. <clears throat> our God and Father, we obey gladly your scripture to pray for those in authority, for kings, for rulers, for leaders. We pray especially for our commander-in-chief and for the men and women around him, our Department of Defense, Homeland Security, for our Pentagon officials, that good men and women of integrity, of good morality, of concern for the country would have great wisdom in how to protect in a world that's gone insane. We pray for men and women in uniform in harm's way. Some here... In the States, some abroad who are on the bleeding edge of danger. If you know of a family or a person abroad or in uniform, would you pray for them by name right now? you pray for men and women of faith, those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Would you pray that those men and women who wear a uniform, elected, appointed officials all, would have the courage, the care, the passion to share Christ with those around them? 
Would you pray for those who have lost loved ones in campaigns recent or in the past? Families that mourn because a son, a husband, a daughter did not come home from a campaign who gave their life in service to a country. Would you pray for that family's comfort and encouragement? Even though insulated here in Middle Tennessee from so many things, would you pray for our state and for our country that we would have the wisdom, the care, the diplomacy, the courage to protect our borders, to protect the men and women who call this place their home. And would you pray that you and I would live as good citizens, moral, upright, obeying the laws, kind, courteous, not hateful, not acerbic, not strident, but men and women who can smile and trust God and trust the King Jesus without fear of the world and be the kind of people that would be compelling to those who wonder why we live the way we do. Our Father God, our sovereign King, the only King, we praise you, we worship you, we adore you, we acknowledge that you are the King not merely of a country but of the universe. You are the sovereign creator and sustainer of all that we have. Remind us often in our small view of life that there is an eternality beyond our comprehension. For those of us who know you, to be with you, to serve you, to be your men and women, to be your people, called by your name, saved by your son, redeemed by his work, and heirs to something we have no right to claim. We love you, Lord Jesus. We need your help to love you well. We ask it in your powerful and precious name. Amen. The account of Abram also Abraham, covers roughly one-fourth of the book of Genesis. The patriarch Abram is called in chapter 12 of the first nine verses. God chooses him not simply because he was better than the rest of the pack, but he chooses Abram because his design is to bless the world. He chose a man to bless the world. From this man Abram, from an area called Ur of the Chaldees, He will choose him and his wife Sarai, and they will bear a son. And that son, a biological son, Isaac, will be the beginning of their progeny. And from him, innumerable people will be born. Nations will come. The world is deeply imbibed in sin. And the time God interrupts, we might say, the time he calls Abram out of Ur the Chaldees to follow him. In chapter 12, we looked at that at some length where he is calling him out to follow him to a place he does not know where he's going, to leave his land, to leave his family, and to trust God and follow him on this sojourn. And Abram obeys. Uh, Granted, he kind of obeys, but he obeys in the main. He does not 
told him to leave his family. He has Lot in tow. He has his father in tow. There's an entourage, in fact, in tow. And as the story of Abram unfolds, little by little, these things will siphon off. Terah, the father, will die. Lot will have to be separated from him. And each of those key times will have the record of Genesis 12, today 15, 17, 19, explaining more of the covenant, more of the ramifications of what it means, as God strips away the vestiges of what Abram did not quite totally obey, but he did believe, and he did follow God. He is a patriarch. He's a flawed character, but he is a patriarch nonetheless who we esteem and admire and respect the more we study his life. In chapter 12, verses 10, through chapter 20, verse 18, uh, we have what some call the waiting for the promise period. God made a promise to Abram, but he had not delivered from human terms. And so this waiting, we'll see today, it's another 25 years at least before this child will be born. And he's going to wait and hold on to a promise, a rumor we might say, that God told him something and that he will yet deliver in the future. There's the personal side of Abram's own sojourn, his moving around in this Bedouin-like existence with tents and livestock and lots of people. Some estimates would go up to 1,000 to 1,200 people will be in this entourage moving around with him during this time period. His own sojourn will be one of failure, of lying, of deception, of success, of belief, just like yours and mine. A life of faith that is mixed with doubt, despair, discouragement, good decisions and bad decisions all. And Abram stands out as the man of faith. Today we'll look at part of chapter 15. Two key events in chapter 15 culminated with the covenant explained further. Next week Lloyd will take us there. Their life is not going to be easy. In fact, it's going to be very difficult at times. But God's made him a promise. And the question is, will you believe in God's promise? Will you trust God's promise? Will you act accordingly, even though it's difficult? Even though it's hard? Even though you'll suffer? Even though people will die? Will you trust him? And that question remains today. In Genesis 17, God will again explain the covenant, expanding it a little bit more. He'll rename Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. And the word plays are evident and somewhat comical. You don't have a child yet, but now I'm going to call you, in a sense, we'd say, a father of a whole lot more people. You're not just Abram, one, you're Abraham. We might say plural, not literally, but that's the emphasis of what he's saying. There'd be a lot of you, Abraham. And Abraham dutifully accepts the new name. It is astonishing and implausible. He'll be 99 years old, give or take, and he'll be told he's going to have a son well past childbearing, his wife well past childbearing years, and a year later we'll come and we'll see Isaac will be born. Again, Abraham will intervene to save Lot, not once but twice. The next time, Sodom and Gomorrah will be destroyed. Abraham and Sarah will then go on to the Negev, both a geographic and a symbolic statement of they're going south into the desert, we might say. They're going to the lower parts, so to speak. And that journey, that sojourn in the Negev will be a metaphor for his, the difficulty of following God at his word. In chapter 21, we begin to see the fulfillment of the promise when Isaac is born. 
There should be joy and celebration and excitement. And finally, a son's been born to the patriarch, only to go into great conflict with Ishmael, the half-son. So great is the conflict between Ishmael and Hagar and the boy Isaac that Abraham will have to send him away. And that will take another trajectory in the storyline. Today we look at Genesis 15. If you have a Bible, please open to Genesis 15. If you don't have a Bible, bring one next week, will you? Get a real Bible, will you? A real one that opens up that has pages in it that you can doodle in it and draw pictures. You can, you can hide your program and draw pictures in your program. I'm not against technology. I love it. But there's something about having the Word of God that you can hold it open and read it and mark it up. And if you can do that electronically, good for you. Get a real Bible anyway. (laughs) Genesis 15, there are two confirmations I want you to see. The first is the Word comes to Abram twice. The second is a ceremony of a covenant. In Genesis 15, 1, the Word of the Lord came to Abram. If you use the New American Standard Bible, which Lloyd, Bill, Rob, and I teach from, in the front of that Bible there's a few pages that explain a lot of things. And one thing they explain is the words for God. And the word Lord, L-O-R-D, the O-R-D, when it's in a upper small case capital letters, small capital letters, that's the word for Yahweh. So here we have the word Yahweh. The word of Yahweh came to Abram. When we read the Bible, sometimes we read it too quickly or too cursorily. And in our haste, we miss the fact God is speaking to somebody in the storyline. And the word of God came to Abram. It'll come again, and we'll see in a minute. But the second confirmation will be both the word and the covenant. Now, the word covenant, and Lloyd will talk about it next week, means to cut something, the cutting of a covenant. And you'll see that explained where the animals are going to be cut and certain things are going to happen. So we have the word of God coming at least three times in the text, but the ceremony is meant to cement a picture of this covenant for Abram and for all generations to come. I would suggest at the front end that the so what of this passage, the big idea, the theme of this passage is that God's promises will not be thwarted or stopped even though man is in doubt or in danger. God's promises cannot be thwarted or stopped, even though man may put himself in danger or man may doubt. We saw Abram put himself in danger when he lied in Egypt. He'll do it again. We'll see other aspects where he will jeopardize, humanly speaking, the promise of God. God's plan cannot, will not be thwarted because man puts himself in danger or because man doubts. So when you and I doubt... When you and I delve into sin, putting our lives in jeopardy in sin, when we choose to sin knowingly, God's promises cannot be stopped. God's word cannot be thwarted. So we're to trust him. We're to trust him when it makes no sense. We're to trust him when our experience tells us otherwise. We're to trust him when life doesn't work the way we want it to. That's faith. And that's the story of Abram Abraham, Sarai, and Sarah. The challenge is you and I live in a very small field of view. Our field of view is about this big. It's somewhat fixed focused. It's somewhat myopic. And it's very selfish. 
And as I've said many times, I think about faith in relationship to me and my and I a lot more than I think about faith in what God is up to. Because we're human beings. We live on the horizontal, not the vertical. And the goal of the Christian life isn't to be guilty because we don't live on the vertical. The goal of the Christian life is once in a while to look to the vertical. The goal of the Christian life is to mature. Am I a little more less preoccupied with self than I used to be? Am I a little more less preoccupied with my way, my life, my plans, my dreams, and a little more interested in God has a better plan that I may never understand. But by faith I'll trust him. I'll believe him. By faith, I will obey him. I will follow him, even though it does not make much sense. Well, in chapter 15, verse 1, first of all, we see that God's promises are true and they are reliable, and he's going to bless just as he promised. Genesis 15, 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. When God speaks in the Scripture, whether it's Old Testament or when Jesus says, I am, John records seven of those, the bread of life, the, the resurrection and the life, the door, the good shepherd. These I am statements, we call them self-revelatory. The sovereign God reveals himself. And when he speaks to Abram, when he speaks to Moses, to Noah, to other patriarchs, when he speaks to prophets, when he speaks to the person of Christ, he's revealing who he is. He, and he's telling Abram, who he is. And he said, do not fear, Abram. I often remind myself and others, whenever you read, don't be afraid. You don't tell someone who is courageous and fearless, don't be afraid. You tell people who are afraid, don't be afraid. The repetition of Joshua, be strong and have courage, was not because he was courageous and fearless. You don't tell somebody courageous and fearless, be strong and have courage. You tell someone who's afraid and discouraged to be strong and have courage. Do not fear, Abram, for I am your shield. A shield and a reward are the two key words when looking for just a moment. Most English Bibles sound like your reward is going to be great in the sense that you've obeyed me, I'm going to bless you, you're going to have this great reward. Let me parse that a little bit finely. First of all, he says, Abram, I am a shield. The word shield is a tell back to the earlier chapter 14 where he's just defeated the five kings of Sodom and Cadalamor and so forth. He's just won these battles. And after the heels of a battle, the storyline, the narrative, chapter 15 says, I'm your shield. Not your trained men. Not that you did the right thing when you engaged that battle. I'm your shield, Abram. And the second thing he tells them is that he is a reward. Now, to parse this neatly and find, too fine a point, perhaps, he's saying, Abram, I am your shield. Abram, I am the one who will reward you. He's not saying your reward's going to be great because you obeyed me. That, I think, is how we read it if we read it too quickly. He's saying, Abram, I'm your shield, and I'm going to be the one who's going to reward you. Think back on chapter 14. What happened when he won the war? The kings of Sodom were going to give him the part of the spoils. He says, no, I won't take it, paraphrase, lest anyone would say, I made Abram rich. 
He turned away a reward. That was a good decision. And God, Yahweh, is now telling him, I'm your shield. I'm going to be the one who's going to reward you. But the Hebrew mind, reward meant something else. Reward just didn't simply mean the spoils of a war or wealth. In fact, it had to do something with children. Let's continue on where we see his impatience, we might say, verses 2 and 3. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? Now he's just told him, I'm your shield and I will be the one to reward you. And now he asks, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, since you have given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. Now, technically, we call this a lament or even a complaint. Now, when we call Scripture a complaint, it's not like we're whining at the complaint department at a department store because somebody didn't go right or you're online complaining about a product you bought. A complaint is a, a plaintiff saying to God, you've told me this, but this isn't happening. He's not being the whining critic. He's just essentially saying what God told him, saying it's not happening according to the way that I understood it, the, the way you told me it was going to happen. So from Abram's part, it's actually a pretty good comment. Okay, you said you're my shield. You said you're going to be the one to reward me. Uh, hello, I got a question for you. I'm childless. You said you were going to give me innumerable children. I'm childless, and the one who's my heir is born in my house. I think he completely understood the reward here was children. Some of you, maybe you have now, maybe I remember Cindy and I early on in our, our child-bearing years, people gave us plaques and embroidery things and needlepoint and whatnots that had Psalm 127.3 on it. Some of you might still have those hanging on your wall. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Same idea. I'm going to be the one who's going to reward you. I got no children. I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to be your shield to defend you through the trials of life, both self-inflicted when you get in trouble, as well as keeping my promise. And I'm going to be the one who's going to reward you which is a bit of a tell to the story of Hagar and Ishmael. I'm going to reward you. Not that way. I'm going to reward you. Uh, the story of Eliezer at Damascus takes a little bit of study. If you went to Genesis 24, you'd see the same name. We can't be certain it's the same character. It may well be. Eliezer of Damascus. The text goes out of the way to tell us he's not from Ur of the Chaldees. Remember, Abram and Sarah have no children. So this entourage, let's just use a thousand as a round number. This thousand group of people that are living a Bedouin existence, moving around in what we'd call the Middle East in Israel, they aren't related to Abram in the sense that they weren't his children and grandchildren and cousins and nieces and nephews. Now, yes, he had Lot with him, who was a nephew. Yes, Terah was with him until Terah, his father, until he dies. But for the most part, these are not, they're certainly not his lineage, but he's got this group of people. So one born in his house probably has the idea of this complex of people that are moving around. They had children in this process, and one born in that was, be, would be the one he evidently designates. We don't know all the reasons why, 
But more importantly, what God will tell him is that, no, one that's going to come from you, which we'll look at in a minute. Does Abram believe God right now? Does he trust God right now? Is he, is he shaking his fist at God saying, where's my reward? Derek Kidner writes, though not fully formed, Abram's faith, not his unbelief, shines out in this answer. Again, though not fully formed, Abram's faith, not unbelief, shines out in this answer. What's Kidner saying? Abram knew his stuff. Abram's a bright guy. He says, all right, you're my, ro- you're my shield and you're my reward. Where's my reward? You told me these things. I've been believing it. I left Ur of the Chaldees. I left my home. I'm, I'm wandering around here at, upon your direction. I'm waiting. You're my shield. You're the one. Where's my reward? You told me about this. So the complaint isn't a whining complaint, one would argue. It's he believed God, and he's waiting. And that's the hard part, is waiting. Because God's promises and timetables are not ours, and we don't like that. I am the most impatient, probably the most impatient person in this room. When Cindy and I go to a restaurant, if it's just the two of us, and they say it's an hour wait, we are out of there. I don't care what restaurant it is. Now, if I'm with some friends, I might say, okay, I can talk to my friends for an hour. But even that tests every patience in my DNA. I hate to wait. It's not that important. I'll go back on a weeknight when there's no waiting. Let all those other people that have real jobs wait in line. I can go on a Monday night. I don't have to go on a Friday night, for goodness sakes. I hate to wait. Cindy says, I'm selfish and I'm impatient. Maybe so. I still hate to wait. I don't like to wait. And it goes into my spiritual life. I don't like to wait. I'm an impatient soul. Are you impatient with God? There's that focal view. Myopic spiritual life. This is the way I see God My marriage, my children, my family, my job, my health, my friends, my plans, my hopes, my dreams. My, 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 my. Some of us remember, perhaps you memorized 1 Corinthians 10, 13 when you were young. Maybe if you did the topical memory system or you memorized some key verses, it's a great exercise. It would be a good thing for you to do this summer. Memorize Five verses a month between now and the end of the summer. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken us, but such as is common to man. Everybody is tempted. Such as common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide an escape also, so that you may be able to endure it. That's a promise of Scripture. You're going to be tempted. Good news. You're going to be tempted. But it's not overwhelming. And with the temptation, there are ways to get out of it. No temptation has overcome you, such as is common to man. Everybody's going to be tempted. To put it in a paraphrase paragraph, we are barraged and beat about the head and shoulders all day long with temptation. 
Lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, boastful pride of life. We are beaten up with temptation. You can't, you can't even come to church without being tempted. We're tempted all the time. It's everywhere all the time. I was commenting to one of our greeters. I saw some young people back there, and I don't have my device, but they're all doing this. When I walk in this room before the service, you all are doing this. Well, all. A lot of you are doing this. It's a statement on our culture. I'm not saying it's evil or bad or wrong. It's a statement of our culture. Why do they call it an iPhone? It ain't called a U phone or a we phone or an other's phone for a reason. I still remember, was it Scully or Jobs? One of them said, we want the computer to be your friend. They succeeded. Temptation is all around us all the time. And so, from time to time, we give in, we cave, we fail. We fall into sin, we agree, we let the temptation win, we succumb to it. Then perhaps we feel guilty, or we feel ashamed, or maybe we're dull to it, and we're callous to it, and it doesn't really bother us. Over time, it starts to weigh. And then what do we do? Well, God, why are you tempting me? Why do you let these temptations come? Time out. He's told us no temptation has overtaken us, but such is his common man. We are fallen creatures in a fallen subject, a fallen world, a fallen context. We will be tempted. Abram was tempted, and he's a patriarch. He's a hero. David was tempted. David failed lots of times. He's still a man after God's own heart. Because when confronted, he repented. He loved God, but he failed. But he comes back to God. That's the life of faith. He's not asked you and me to be perfect, thank goodness. But he has asked us to be faithful. From our vantage point, promises are delayed. Is that not why we sin? Because we want something that we cannot have, we're not supposed to have, it's off limits, it's beyond the pale, and we reach for it nonetheless because we don't want to wait for God's provision. I would submit that all sin is an illegitimate means to a legitimate end. All sin is an illegitimate means to a legitimate end. Sex outside beyond the pale of marriage, there is a way for that to have a legitimacy within a marriage. But when we go outside the bounds, because we're tempted, we live in a cauldron of temptation. I can have it. Nobody judges me anymore. Everyone's doing it. What's the big deal? It doesn't matter. That's the whole culture. And so we say, well, it doesn't really matter. And then the long, dark nights of the soul, and we feel guilty and ashamed, and we wonder about it, and we repress it, we push it down, and on and on it goes. No temptation has overtaken us, but such as is common to man. With the temptation, he will provide a way of an escape also. And I love the last phrase, so that we may be able to endure it. Faithfulness is enduring the junk of the world we live in. Faithfulness is enduring the bombardment of temptations which never let up our entire life. Remember, years ago, I was 28 years old serving in a little church in Texas. and We were going to launch four of us in this car. One guy was 80-something years old. And we pulled up in front of this restaurant and this 
can I tell a story that's going to be politically incorrect? You'll forgive me ahead of time. <laughs> this a woman who was not dressed very modestly, let me just say it that way, that's politically correct. She wasn't dressed very modestly, walked in front of the car. These are three elders and me. One guy's 80. And he says from the back seat, I'll be glad when I'm old enough when that doesn't bother me. And I'm 20-something going, I'm toast. I'm just <laughs> toast. I may well just jump off a bridge now. But it was so refreshing to hear him say it. Because it never stops. No temptation has overtaken us with such as is common. From our vantage point, the promise is delayed. I can't have the thing. Well, you trust Christ to get the right thing, not the wrong thing. We are so focused on the here and now, we don't have any notion of the there and then. And that's the problem with our spiritual myopia. I've said it many times. I hope you don't tire of me repeating these things. By the way, you know, when preachers say things over and over and over, they're talking to themselves more than anybody. You know that, don't you? Listen carefully to what a preacher talks about. That's what they struggle with. Um, Ask God not merely for a miracle. Ask him for an immovable faith. If you and I get a miracle, we need another miracle. You've heard me tell the story countless times. I think Lazarus got a raw deal. He's dead and on his way to heaven. And Jesus, show off, resurrects him. Makes the point he's the life and resurrection. Lazarus, he he was no doubt, he was the man everybody wanted to talk to for a long time. I mean, think about interviewing people today. I read a, a, watched a guy recently tell a story about being dead for 45 minutes and being brought back to life. I don't know what to do with that. But let's say it was a miracle. Let's just say it was a miracle. He's going to die again. Ask God not merely for a miracle to solve your problem. Ask him for an immovable faith in the midst of the problems. Because the miracles will always need, you'll need another one, another one, another one, another one. I mean, if I was given a thousand miracles, I'd have spent them all on my children years ago. And I'd still need another thousand. But give me an immovable faith to trust you in the midst of death, in the midst of doubt. God, in his great patience and kindness, assures Abram his promise is good. Verse 4, then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying. So we had the word of the Lord come to him in a vision. Now the word, verse 4, comes to the Lord, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. Not from your tent, from your body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Eliezer, the Damascus man who is born in your complex, is not going to be the heir, even though he's part of your group, your tribe, your clan, if you want to call it that. One from your loins, one from you and Sarai, he is going to be the heir. Um, Theophany, Christophany, we talked about those. A pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. My sanctified imagination on this second clause, Jesus shows up in the Bedouin tent complex, and he's talking to Abram. 
And he takes Abram by the hand. Come outside the tent, Abram. Look up at the night sky. Can you count those? That's how many descendants you're going to have. He doesn't say this, but this is where my mind runs. Can you name them? I've given them all names. Can you see the ones you can't see? Of course not, but I know they're there. To you and me, he'd say, the ones the Hubble have stumbled across and think they've seen, they don't know anything about how many stars are out there. Not unlike the discourse with Job. You seen the sunrise? You seen the mountain goats calve and deliver and run the rocks? Can you explain those things? Can you explain those to me, Job? Abram, can you count the stars? Do you think Abram, for the next 25 plus years, ever walked the night skies in the Middle East and looked up at those stars the same way? Maybe tonight you need to go home after the kids are in bed or whatever your story is. You need to walk outside and look at the stars. Your sovereign creator, sustainer's fingerprints are in the heavens, guaranteeing Abram a promise. that, By the way, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are part of the spiritual lineage of Abram, who he chose to be a blessing to the world, whom you and I have attached ourselves to by faith in Christ. That's how big this promise is. Through one man, Abram, who puts himself in danger, who doubts, but believes nonetheless, and he presses on. Then he believed the Lord God, and he reckoned to it to him as righteousness. Abraham is a character study in faith. Hebrews 11.8 states, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place Uh, which he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Paul will spend the entire chapter 4 of Romans explaining this one verse in 15.6. He'll refer to it again in Galatians chapter 3. James in chapter 2 will talk about this one verse. Because this one verse says, Abraham believed God and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Two key terms in your Bible, believe and righteousness. Belief has to do with reliability, with trust, with believing in something when our experience tells us otherwise. What do we have up here? Trusting God when it doesn't make sense. You're believing in something no matter what your experience tells you. So on the one hand, we have the reliability of God's word. Secondly, we have the reality of Abram's faith. Yes, he doubted. Yes, he sinned. Yes, he failed. But the trajectory was one of faith. And that's the life for you and me. We're going to fail. We're going to doubt. We're going to put our own spiritual life in danger. We're going to live in doubt from time to time. We're not going to believe God. We're going to sin and do it our way because we shortcut, because we don't like the weight. And he forgives graciously. He's merciful. He's kind. He loves his children. He's not mad at his children. Abraham believed God. And it was reckoned to him as righteous. This doesn't mean, and some will argue this is when Abraham came into faith. I disagree. I think Abraham came to faith in chapter 12 when he left Ur. Because he follows God. And, and as much as Hebrews says so. 
So what do you have at the high level? The reality of God's promise, the reliability of God's promise, and the reality of Abram's faith. Righteousness is a different term. Righteousness is hard for us to grab. It's the idea of doing the right thing in the right way. It's the right attitude and the right actions toward God. You and I in the flesh are not righteous. Nothing we can do can ever make us righteous. By believing God, God reckons Adam, uh, Abram as righteous. When you trusted Christ, he reckoned you righteous as well. Now, any illustration at best stands on three legs, not four, and it can wobble. And many of you have heard the illustration of what it means to be reckoned. But a good way to try to understand it is you have a mortgage, you have car payments, maybe you have college student loans, maybe you have other loans. And someone today dropped $10 million in your bank account. Tuesday morning when the bank opens, you, uh, you get an email notice or you get your statement in the end of the month. And it says you got $10 million plus what your former balance was. And if you're smart, you call the bank to be sure it's right. And you say, wait, 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 I don't have $10 million. Well, a deposit was made on your account. Are you sure? We're positive. That was reckoned. $10 million was reckoned to your account that you did not have, you could not have earned in a lifetime, but someone dropped $10 million in your account. That's righteousness being reckoned to the believer. When you trusted Christ and Christ alone, you believed in him, you responded to the call of salvation, he reckoned you righteous. He put this in an account, and you are now declared righteous. You did not become righteous because you believed. Hear this carefully. You didn't believe, and God says, oh, now you're righteous because you believed. You believed, and he reckons you righteous. It's a fine point, but it's a critical point, because none of us are righteous. No, not even one. But he makes us righteous, and we're to live righteously. Abram is a character study in faith. You know, he's revered by the Muslims more than the Christians. You know he's revered by the Jews more than evangelical Christians? And I don't mean revered in an improper way that we worship him, but we respect what God did with this man who was by all intents and purposes a pagan. His father was a moon god worshiper, Terah. And he calls him out of that, and Abram believes God and follows him into the unknown. When men and women of faith Trust Christ. You follow him. We're going to live in doubt and we're going to live in danger. Sometimes we're not going to believe God. Sometimes we're going to endanger ourselves by sin. We're going to make choices we know that are wrong. We might go a long way into that sin. The faithful believer is called back by the promise of God. No matter what you and I do, his promise is good. No matter what you and I do, his promise is secure. The growing, maturing believer says, yes, more to Christ than to sin. It's a process. It's not easy. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to fail. He loves you nonetheless. He cares for you nonetheless. He will always forgive you. Because that's the kind of God he is. Our Father in heaven, we want to worship you well. Give us the strength and temerity to get up again to get back on the horse and ride again. Thank you that you forgive us. May we not take it lightly or in a cavalier way dismiss that our sin means nothing. 
but help us to become men and women of extraordinary faith, immovable faith. And may we believe you and trust you even when it doesn't make sense. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.